This audio is brought to you by Business Radio, powered by Wharton, originally airing on SiriusXM. From the campus of the University of Pennsylvania Wharton School, this is Launchpad on Business Radio. Hello and welcome. You're listening to Launchpad here on Business Radio, Sirius XM 132. I'm Rob Conybeer, a founder and managing director at Shasta Ventures, a venture capital firm where we focus on investing in early stage companies. So I'm really excited about today's guest, uh, somebody that I have followed for years and have increasingly admired, Keith Raboy. He is an early PayPal executive, LinkedIn uh, Square COO. Actually, the list of things goes on and on. And probably the way in which I would describe him is if Milton Friedman had been an operator and investor instead of an academic, you'd end up with Keith Raboy. Uh, we're together on Zoom today. I'm up on Orcas Island up in Washington State, a place where I fled from California to. And Keith is now in Miami, and I think for him it may not have been flight as much as heading to opportunity. Keith, thank you so much for making the time to join me today. Pleasure to be with you, Rob. So, Keith, one of the things that I wanted to, um, you know, cover today is looking at your background, and, and you've done a ton of media. Um, you, you've you've been very prolific on on Twitter. Um, Jason Calcanis has called you the great white shark on Twitter. You know where there's a shark beneath the surface and weighing in and just your engagement on social media and your engagement in general and, and willingness to speak your mind is pretty remarkable. But I see this like looking at your your life and what you've done. There's kind of been this tension between a few different things that I was hoping to, to cover today. And one is you started out kind of in the world of government and the world of law, and then you came into business. Um, You've been both an executive and a founder, but then also venture capital, a very institutionalized thing. And then also on geography, this Miami versus uh, California uh, tension has been very interesting. So wanted to talk about these different things, but, you know, one of one of the places that I really wanted to start is your journey into all this. And I, I didn't find as much about that when I was learning about your background. But as I understand, you were born in New Jersey, grew up in New Jersey. And what I was particularly interested about is just those formative years. What was it like growing up in New Jersey? And at what point did you realize that you really wanted to leave kind of a, a dent on the universe, so to speak? Like, was it always something you wanted to do? Or maybe just go back and, and just talk a bit about growing up in New Jersey. Yeah, so I grew up in a commuter suburb of New York City in New Jersey, um, all 18 years of my life. Um, public school, kind of classic, middle class, you know, background. Uh, decided I wanted to escape New Jersey or at least try something new after 18 years there. So I didn't really, uh, I didn't apply to any colleges in New Jersey. Um, hoped to go to California. I had no idea what I was getting into. I'd never been to California, but I had this romantic vision of California, mostly from movies. And Stanford was like the only elite school in California. So it was Stanford. Um, and uh, I also happened to like athletics and at you know, Stanford, I'd been following Stanford football. Um, actually, since John Elway um, in the early 80s was playing there. And so combined athletics uh, plus uh, academics plus sun. I felt it'd be like a great escape from New Jersey. Um, so I pulled the trigger, uh, moved across country, it landed, saw palm trees, was sort of in heaven. Um, then I realized that the weather wasn't very good. There was no air conditioning in the dorms. Uh, the music was kind of odd and weird, at least based upon you know my experience growing up in high school. And uh, you know, sort of was a little homesick for a while, but eventually uh, wound up staying in California for a long time, um, escaped a few years for law school, practiced law for a few years, but basically from the time I was 18, to the time I was 50, with maybe three years or four years accepted, um, I lived in California. And, and in that time frame, before you applied to Stanford, it sounds like you applied to and you got into Stanford without actually visiting California. Pretty much, yes. Um, Stanford back then didn't really have an early admissions program, um, which I think has changed. Um, but I, I was set on Stanford. It, from the time, if you had met me in seventh grade, eighth grade, ninth grade, all I could do is talk about going to Stanford. Um, I think my high school colleague uh, friends, you know, sort of hated me because all I would, I wouldn't shut up and wear Stanford paraphernalia, et cetera. Um, I did have kind of a men- 
geez, a mentor sort of, uh, there's this woman that I sort of worked through some extra career activities. I was a student a couple of years ahead of me at Stanford. And she, she was a bit of an inspiration. Um, so I kind of knew that she loved it at Stanford and, you know, it was, it only reinforced the stuff I read sort of on the, not on the internet, actually books back then. Yeah. And, and in that time frame, I'm guessing you had pretty good grades or perfect grades and did you test well? And like, what was it that Stanford saw in Keith Raboy at that early age? You know, given yeah, that- I mean, I, I had the standard, you know, GPA, high class rank, high school activities, you know, et cetera, that basically everybody applies Stanford highs. But, um, you know, Stanford has had the luxury since like the 80s of being an elite school and, you know, chooses among the class of people that all have very impressive grades, SAT scores, et cetera. I think probably the things that stood out mostly for me were I'd been um, actively involved in a bunch of activities and won a bunch of awards, been elected, you know, president of various associations and stuff. That was probably the one thing that set me apart. It wasn't like the SAT scores were, you know, very good and the grades were very good, but there's tons of people who have those credentials. That's interesting. What were some of those things you were president of? Oh, wow. I did virtually everything simultaneously. I like uh, ran our debate club. I won a bunch of sort of national awards. I ran um, various parts of our school newspaper. I did a bunch of sports stuff. I I was like even elected somehow to an office at the French Honor Society where I could barely speak French after five years. Um, So I was definitely optimizing my college application from the time I was in ninth grade. Yeah, well, it's interesting. You, it, a lot of stuff you were involved with, very engaged, kind of a polymath, but I didn't hear you mention stuff that I hear from a number of entrepreneurs like, hey, I loved coding or I started this business back in your freshman year. So it sounds like you, you might have been on a, a different track at that time than what you see out of a, a lot of successful entrepreneurs. I certainly was not interested in business. I did not start a business, didn't try to run a business. I did code, I'd learned to code as a pretty early, probably as early as fourth grade. Um, so I was kind of playing around with an Apple II Plus from the time I was very young. Um, I created some attendance system for my middle school um, using my Apple II Plus to you know, track what kids went to what classes and things like that back when that was difficult to do. Um, I you know, took AP computer science and things of that sort in high school. And then I stopped coding cold turkey, which is pretty stupid if you think about like benefits of hindsight. Literally, the last time I coded anything was senior year of high school, and then I didn't try to code anything for over a decade thereafter, which is probably a you know massive mistake. Um, so uh, it's not really obvious where you're going to go in life, but um, I was I was coding a fair amount um, when I was growing up. Basic. I seem to remember basic mm-hmm. on the Apple II Plus was you had that bracket as the prompt and then the flashing <laughs> prompt. And I remember like playing around with graphics at the first time, because like to build a game, you could move letters around the screen to do different things like that. But, uh, well, that's, it was, that's basic. it was basic. I learned basic Pascal and to date myself Fortran, um, you know, and Fortran is actually, I guess, still useful, but nobody, nobody uses basic or Pascal anymore. Yeah. Well, I mean, Fortran at the end of the day is kind of related to basic, but so you end up at Stanford. And you, you get to know California, and then you came back across the country to Harvard Law School, I believe, kind of right away. Um, and it sounds like from your activities, you were on this path to you know, political science. And did you want to run for office? Do you want to be involved with policy? Did you want to advise campaigns? What was your thinking at that point in your life? Like many people who become lawyers, I have a lot of interest in, interest in politics, policy, and, you know, how that would manifest itself wasn't completely clear, but I, I probably thought of myself more as a chief of staff to a candidate or campaign manager than a candidate. Um, and so that was my sort of career goal along the way. And I, you know, was definitely pursuing that alongside of my legal education and, you know, be involved in, I, I volunteered for campaigns, I worked for campaigns, I studied with like some of the best campaign managers in the country at the RNC, had various programs that I could learn the stuff from. So I was very actively involved in the stuff from the time I was probably 18 to 30. So if you're just tuning in, I'm Rob Connybeer and you're listening to Launchpad on SiriusXM 132 Business Radio. I am on Zoom right now with Keith Raboy, um, incredibly successful serial uh, entrepreneur, executive and investor, um, and also in Miami. So 
from what I can tell, looking at your background, it sounds like it, it looks like you were spending time with the quail campaign or advising quail. And then you ended up with voter.com. And my suspicion is that that's the point at which you might have started to think about the startup world. How did that transition happen? And, you know, because you made that transition and then you went into like, I think, legal affairs or public policy with PayPal. That was your your the way you were brought into the mafia. But we'd love to hear about that transition from the government policy centric kind of career path you had over to business. Yeah, so several of my friends were involved in the first generation of internet startups at Stanford. And from like the mid nineties to the late nineties, they were always trying to recruit me out of law. And I'd come back to the Bay area once or twice a year, half the time, half of the purpose was to visit my friends. The other half was go up and sell me on the future of technology. And they correctly predicted that this was a gold rush. Um, I remember them using that language in 1996, 1997, 1998. And I actually happened to enjoy the practice of law. I didn't like every component of the practice of law, like billing per hour, I build sometimes 300 plus hours in a month. Um, I didn't like the lack of specialization. I didn't like the lack of um, differentiated compensation, but I enjoyed my job. I had amazing clients, I had intellectually challenging opportunities. I enjoyed writing, drafting, briefing, um, in a, yeah, both appellate and um, district, federal court, district court work. So I wasn't looking to leave law, but they kept recruiting me. Um, you're right that one of the re- one of the when I finally decided to pull the trigger and abandon the practice of law, one of the reasons why this specific company recruited me was because of my background in policy. And the company had the goal of digesting policy on an individualized and personalized basis for everybody. The thesis of voter.com back in the day, and still a pretty good thesis, was that. A lot of Americans say that they're not interested in politics, quote politics, like so politics in quotes. But what they actually mean by that is they're not interested in the broad array of issues, but that almost every single American has a set of issues that actually are important to them, whether it's immigration, taxes, abortion, you name it. And so that we could decompose content into digestible uh, doses uh, solely focused on the con- on the content and topics that resonated with specific people, that everybody would be more engaged in politics. That would be a good thing for society. And that was like the first generation of the internet. That was a very compatible thesis with the first generation of the internet that you could personalize content successfully and micro-targeted. So that's what we were doing. But my background in politics, coupled with just you know friends within the company that were recruiting me because they thought they could teach me stuff and that I might actually be good. Um, was the reason why I finally pulled the trigger. At the time, we were at the height of the internet bubble, and there was a scarcity of talent. The reason why my friends were recruiting me was they couldn't hire people with enough experience because everybody was starting a company. So they were everybody kind of settling going. for you, is what you're saying? They were, they were, well, su- they were pretty, pretty much smart. Me, yeah. They we'll were he's, he's pretty smart. He worked really hard at the time. Um, I think that was actually probably the most important ingredient was uh, people were impressed by work ethic. Like That was definitely how I stood out earlier in my career. Um, and then, you know, they felt that they could teach me the kind of fundamentals of internet businesses. And in fact, one of the reasons why I specifically joined that company was the guy who hired me and recruited me, I felt like actually could easily teach me and successfully teach me in a compressed period of time, the fundamentals of business and internet businesses specifically. So I decided in February 2000 to leave the practice of law and jump into this crazy new world of technology. And, uh, you know, sort of the rest is history. I haven't really gone back to the practice of law, although I occasionally play a lawyer on TV and give people legal advice, whether they like it or not. Um, but fundamentally, you know, that was 21 years ago. Were you, when you were practicing law, were you in the Bay Area? Did you come back after um, Harvard Law or were you on the East Coast? I was on the East Coast, primarily in Washington, D.C., with some detours in New York City. So the firm I worked at, Sullivan Cromwell, is the quintessential Wall Street law firm. We did it like 1880s practice of law. That's what we did. Um, like I literally hand wrote everything on a, note, a yellow notepad, handed it to my secretary who would type it up. And we didn't even have external email for most of my practice, most of your practicing law. I mean, I could barely use a browser even when I was leaving the firm. I'd go to the library to use the browser to do research. And the librarian, these are all the correct titles, secretary, librarian, et cetera, to date myself. The librarian would teach me how to use a browser. So when I left <laughs> to join the technology world, it was a pretty foreign move for me. That said, I had always had some aspirations of being interested in technology. 
I grew up reading Mike Moritz, Mike Moritz writing for Time Magazine, Mike Moritz writing Little Kingdom. And so in some ways, Mike was my hero back then. um, And he was my sort of guide through the wonderful world of technology. I saved only four magazine covers from Time Magazine, which I subscribed to, or my parents subscribed to for me from the time I was in fifth grade to the time I graduated high school. I saved exactly four covers. And one was the one that Mike wrote about Steve Jobs. Did you ever reach out to him out of curiosity or was? Well, I met, well, I got to know Mike. While he was. No, 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 no. I got to meet uh, Mike when I joined PayPal. Mike was on the board of PayPal. Um, So that's, that's how I sort of forged an initial relationship with Mike. So with Voter, was Voter in the Bay Area or what was the actual, okay. But Voter was based in Boston with a head, with a pseudo headquarters in Washington, D.C., so I flew back and forth. I lived in Boston and in D.C. Um, back and forth basically every week. So the transition of PayPal, I'm curious, how did that happen? Like, how did you first find out about it? Did they find you? You found them? Was it an email? How did that happen? So I fortunately um, met Peter Thiel, who co-founded PayPal, the first day of my freshman year at Stanford. And stayed in touch with him. He also had been a lawyer, went to law school, clerked at, actually worked at the same law firm I did. Um, Peter quit the practice of law, though, much faster and perhaps much smarter than me. He quit after three months and four days, and it took me three and a half years to figure it out that I should leave the practice of law for technology. In any event, I had known Peter for a very long time. And when he co-founded PayPal, I'd obviously paid attention. In fact, Back then, Peter and Max were not Peter and Max. They didn't really know a lot of investors. And so I was sitting, I remember sitting in my office in Washington, D.C., and Peter called me up on the phone and said, hey, do you know anybody who invests in technology companies? And I thought about it for a second. And there's two, there's only two people I knew. One was named Kevin Hartz. And I said, yeah, do you remember Kevin Hartz from college? He's like, yeah. So I, introduced him, I actually introduced him to Kevin. And yeah. uh Kevin actually wound up investing and started off his angel invest, prolific angel investing career. And then I introduced him to this other guy who I won't name, but became successful in a different field, not as an investor, um, who turned down Peter and PayPal. Um, so in any event, I wound up actually getting the first business plan from PayPal, um, reading it, but not really understanding it, sending it to my friend, Kevin, who actually agreed to meet Peter and, you know, became, um, really set off his track record, set off his career. Um, he'd already had one IPO in the early days. Kevin had as a founder, a co-founder of a company that wired hotels for the internet. Um, when I was, you know, the first step. Uh, but this is really Kevin. That was think, long, most- long before Eventbrite, which I think him and his wife are. are oh yeah, this is before Kevin's. Kevin co-founded another public company called Zoom, which I was on the board of um, and helped arrange the original uh, funding for, and then went back and did it again with Eventbrite. But anyway, Kevin was one of the most influential people in convincing me to join technology and technology startups. But back when I was a lawyer, I helped introduce him to reintroduce him to Peter, and that became, you know, sort of the reason why he invested in the first round of PayPal. Anyway, so I've been tracking what PayPal was up to. I'd read these stories in the Wall Street, a famous Wall Street Journal article in I believe March of 2020, I mean March of 2000. Um, David Sachs had also been a friend of mine in college as well. So I was definitely monitoring what my friends were up to. Um, but I was, you know, both practicing law and then later working at this voter.com um, sort of technology startup. And as the internet bubble collapsed uh, six weeks after I agreed to join the technology world in March 28th of 2000, and then permanently collapsed in June of 2000, I started to wonder about the future of voter.com. We'd raised a fair amount of money. Back then we'd raised $22 million, which in 2000 was a fair amount of money from some pretty elite investors, CRV, Bessemer, et cetera. Um, but we had a 19-year-old CEO, and as the internet bubble was collapsing, some of the foundational principles behind the company's business strategy that needed to be rethought and pretty quickly and decisively. And our 19-year-old CEO was very indecisive and was a little bit too caught in whiplash between various executives about what to do as our bank account was declining. And eventually, I came to the conclusion personally that I didn't believe that he would be decisive enough to save the company and execute, you know, what, what strategies could be executed in, in the height of the internet bubble class. Is that all happening in parallel? So you were kind of investigating PayPal, learning about it. You had your uh, a person you, had, you admired that you had gone to school with at Stanford. So that just kind of all happened in parallel. 
Yeah, no. Um, actually, I hadn't thought about PayPal at all. I was just reading the press, sort of, because um, obviously, you know, Internet 1.0 was all over the media, from Wall Street Journal to specialized publications like the Red Herring. And so I'd constantly just read the media. But no, I didn't call Peter until I was convinced the company was going to fall apart. It wasn't oh. yet falling apart. But I called yeah. him. Well, Peter had also sort of been quasi-retirement. PayPal had merged with X.com in March of uh, 2000, which really saved the company. He, uh, first, Bill Harrison, very quickly thereafter, Elon Musk took over as CEO. And so Peter was kind of on the sidelines. But then Elon got fired in late, 2000, uh, late August 2000. Peter came back as interim CEO in mid-September 2000. And so as Voter.com was starting to run into major challenges and I could kind of forecast where this was going, I called up Peter basically and said, hey, I just want your advice. What do you think I should do? And Peter's first reaction was, well, I can introduce you to a lot of people in Silicon Valley, but what you should really do is come work for us. So Peter had just taken over as interim CEO of PayPal a few weeks earlier. And like any new CEO, he had a lot of feedback and perspective on which executives he was happy with, which ones he was unsatisfied with, and which areas he wanted to invest in. And so he had some ideas of what he wanted me to do and started to outline those ideas. And he convinced me to move across the country, sight unseen, join the company. And by November 2000, I'd moved from, I'd sold my house or my condo in Washington, D.C. in 24 hours, moved across the country, didn't have a place to live. Crashed on a friend of mine's sofa. You drive a U-Haul across the country at the time? I didn't, I know. I definitely did not drive. Um, I shipped a few boxes, um, mostly books, actually, believe it or not. Um, showed up my friend's sofa, who's attending GSB, crashed on the sofa, found a place to live, and started, um, we negotiated this deal on Thursday, started on Tuesday. Yeah, no, it's it, the, the, the history of PayPal is pretty interesting when you think about the people that came together. I was at New Enterprise Associates back in that time frame. And uh, I remember when Elon Musk came in to pitch X.com. It's like, we're going to build an internet bank. And it's going to be really easy to remember because we have the domain right now. It's just X.com. And when it, we, we ended up not investing. And Stuart Alsop, I don't know if you know Stuart, was a, a general partner there at the time. And he had brought it in. And I just saw a lot of fascinating things during my tenure at NEA. And that was that was one of them because we had looked at Zip2, which was Elon's company before that. And I, I never really knew, like hearing from people, whether PayPal saved X.com or whether X.com saved PayPal. And I think what I heard from you a moment ago is that X.com saved PayPal versus the other way around. But I hear different things from different people. No, PayPal definitely saved X.com in my view. I mean, I joined about six months later, but having been live and knowing all the people involved, X.com was definitely going to crash and burn. Um, actually, the merger itself saved both companies because the company raised $100 billion in conjunction with the merger. Uh, three days before the market collapsed. And so that $100 million was absolutely necessary when no one would remember PayPal or X.com. So the merger itself was very constructive and the timing that really was driven by Peter. Peter was adamant that that round needed to happen, needed to happen ASAP. So he sort of predicted the market collapse and actually maniacally focused and had a lot of very clever strategies about closing out rail really fast. Oh, that's but anyway... The core executive team um, was really saved the overall operation with Peter, Max, David Sachs, Reed Hoffman, who are all PayPal people. The most important person that came from the X.com side was probably Jeremy Stoppelman, actually, who wound up growing up becoming director of engineering at PayPal, later VP, but at director of engineering at Meyer, and later co-founding and being CEO of Yelp. Yeah, no, I think actually, Keith, I don't know if you remember this, but I think the first time you and I might have met was at Yelp's early offices, because I remember a lot of brick on the walls. Now, granted, I'm yes. I'm, I'm describing yes. half the buildings in South of Market, but it was in the early days for Yelp. And I remember coming across it because I was searching for good uh, Chinese takeout. And that was led, you know, it was in the early days before a lot of this happened. But just to come back, just to put a bow around the um, the X and PayPal thing. I, I think about a lot of companies, like if you put two sinking rocks together, they just, you know, the same thing kind of happens, but it sounds like it was really the exception of the rule. And it's particularly fascinating when you think about just the aggregation of talent, just raw talent uh, between the two companies. Yeah, I don't know that you've really seen it since, and maybe it's just 
you can't really do that anymore because you have a much more efficient market where anybody that's really good wants enough of the company that you can't make the math happen to get that many good people together. Or is it something I, else? Yeah. So I think we did have an, an incredible array of talent. I mean, you know, I named a few, Elon Peter, Max, Upton, Reed Hoffman, Chad Hurley, Jeremy Stoppelman. These are just some of the names, you know, of the people um, at the company. So obviously these people got on and built, you know, really impressive things. Roll off, I said over Roloff, who, you know, was our CFO and runs Sequoia. Um, so phenomenal talent all across the board, different levels, different functions, job agents built out of YouTube as well. So we, we have like founders, you know, galore. Um, I think it is difficult in a hot market to assemble critical density of talent because everybody believes that they can start their own company and they can easily raise capital to chase their dreams. And there's nothing wrong with that. I think, you know, encouraging it's kind people. It's true, to, right? Yeah, it's, <laughs> it is true. Right? I mean, right now, if you have, you know, some background and some strong references from a high profile company, there's lots of investors that will give you money. And so, and there's nothing wrong. I mean, I would be a hypocrite if I discourage people from chasing their own dreams and ambitions to start their own company. I think it is an effort, you know, that everybody at some point might want to try is like being the captain is very different than being, you know, a passenger. And so I think that it's almost impossible to array that density of talent until the world corrects. That said, I think, you know, the Node Postla taught me an adage that I really prefer, which is the team you build is the company you build. And so in a hot market, the art is, can you be the exception that becomes a magnet for talent? And if you are, you can produce very special things, but that's very rare. And I think many founders forget that. They're focused on a product and maybe even a distribution advantage, which is great. But if you can't build a team that's special, you can't build an iconic company. So Keith, I, I, I understand that you like to read a lot. And you like books and you you create book lists. I did want to ask you, and I didn't look through all of your book lists. Have have you read The Lessons of History from the Durants? I have not. Oh, wow. Okay. I, 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 I'll boil it down for you. And I think actually, I'm, I will say I'm kind of shocked you haven't read this book, but I'm going to send it to you after the show. To boil it down, they are historians and they are academics, which, you know, may put your hair on end a little bit, but just, just stick with me here. They basically looked at the last 5,000 years of human history and they said human history, you know, along with wars and all this other fun stuff has gone through these cycles between capitalism and socialism slash communism. And it's just this cycle that mankind may be destined um, to continue to repeat over and over. And the basic idea is you, you, the, the world becomes or a society becomes socialist and they realize that everybody's miserable and then they correct and then it becomes capitalist and then things get out of control. And even if it's working really well, even if the pie gets bigger, people that don't have envy people that have, and then you have revolution and they go through and they give a lot of examples, which are, I think, pretty interesting um, I personally, just so you know where my, my view is on this, I view capitalism as a force for world peace. When you have trading partners, genuine trading partners, you don't want to go to war. I believe that making the pie bigger is more important. I believe in opportunities. But I also think, guess what? Part of that risk and reward and decision making is you won't have equality of outcomes. And what I'm curious about is just your take on the interplay, you know, with that backdrop and government of business, like whether you have kind of a framework or a philosophy that you think about for how, you know, government should approach uh, capitalism or should approach uh, just business in general and, and, you know, productivity in our society. Yeah, I think basically envy is a sin for a reason. Um, like many sins, they're appealing to human emotion that's why they're sins and it's a very negative construct i think improving the welfare the objective welfare for people is a very useful objective for both companies people entrepreneurs citizens and governments but relative differences i think are you know jealousy and and envy are just bad emotions that children should be taught are bad things and that government shouldn't replicate lessons of history where those things lead to disasters every single time. 
So how do you think about that? Like you you were involved with public policy and you made this move. And maybe it's interesting to talk about it in the lens of Miami and how you ended up in Miami um, relative to California. Like how did that unfold from the earliest days? For well, you? Let me separate two things. I think there was some element, there are some elements of California that are completely dysfunctional. I think California is on the wrong side of history in many dimensions. So we were definitely looking for alternatives to California. However, I think there's a lot of things about Miami and Florida specifically that are amazing and attractive, completely independent of whether California is dysfunctional. So we started, though, the process of exploring other places to live because of some of the disadvantages of California and kind of sort of saw that things were predicted that things were likely to get worse before they would get better. As we talked about, I grew up in a suburb of New York City and lived through the late 70s and early 80s. In New York City, where New York City was completely intolerable, the crime was out of control, the education system was bankrupt, the electricity system barely worked, there were strikes left and right, it was completely unsafe to go out after sundown, and the city really required massive number of crises before people were willing to elect a Republican to start fixing things. And so I think California is going to go through some version of the same. And when things get intolerable enough, people will vote for different types of politicians and they may be able to clean things up, clear things up, improve things. But right now, California is going to get a lot worse before it gets better. And so we didn't want to suffer through that. Um, as someone regarding the fact of my experience watching New York City burn, literally burn. Um, and so in any event, we started sorting through various opportunities in the U.S. of where would be an ideal place to live. And we use some personal filters, like, for example, I and my husband. And, and, and Keith, one super quick question. When you say we, who do you mean by we? Yeah, I filtered really through this in two constructs, one professionally, one personally. Most importantly, with, with my husband, we filtered where do we want to live? Where do we want to raise a family? And for us, personally, warm weather is very important. We like beaches. We don't like cold weather. So we were looking for warm cities in the U.S. that were not in California. It's a pretty short list just to start. We wanted we actually filtered by number of sunny days. Um, you know, it's not totally correlated with warmth, but that's important to us. We professionally and personally needed an international airport, so that was a criteria that it was pretty important to us. We wanted a cosmopolitan mix of people from diverse backgrounds with different views. My husband's more of a Democrat, I'm more of a Republican, so we like and enjoy being in company of people who think differently. Um, we wanted, we both enjoy art, design, food, shopping, retail. So we were looking for you know cities that had um, first class experiences on those dimensions. I happen to be a Barry's Bootcamp fanatic, so we needed to have a Barry studio, at least one of those uh, was kind of a minimal viable requirement. And then when you go through that list, you end up with a very, very, very short list in the US. We do consider places outside the US, but be- because of time zone differences and connections to friends and family felt like at this point in our careers and our lives, we weren't ready to make that much of a break. So Miami, because it is actually also very proximate to New York, it's very proximate to Latin America, to Europe. We felt like we could move and still be in connection with our friends, our colleagues, our entrepreneurs. Yeah. And it's interesting hearing that because um, I I moved to Seattle uh, two and a half years ago. And a big part of the reason I moved up here is because I liked California but I love the Pacific Northwest. And for me, I was finally at a point in my life, career, family and stuff where I could live where I wanted to live and kind of went through a different set of filters. I I will say the business environment was a huge factor of it, but I also like green and rain and mountains and stuff like that. So kind of that whole package was up here. So it sounds like from what you were saying, it was a, hey, what's the environment that I want to live in and continue to grow my family with and kind of really set down my roots as opposed to kind of career, et cetera. Was, was there a point after you made that decision to go there where you're like, you know what, I want to live here, but I actually want to be this important catalyst in it going to the next level. And, you know, one of the things I've read from different people, I, I'm always fascinated by Dubai, for example, and uh, Singapore, et cetera, is it feels like Miami is kind of this Dubai of Latin America. And you have like this area like Dubai, it's kind of like, well, if you know people from Russia or India or China are kind of worried about their economies falling apart or something happening, they can kind of flee to Dubai if they have some roots there. Here you have like easy plane flights to a lot of unstable South American countries uh, too. 
But coming back to the the question I was asking is, at what point did you say, I want to just set down roots here and be here as opposed to really accelerate this? Or was that part of the whole program from the beginning? Well, the program was always filtered on where can I be professionally successful? Um, so I had no interest in retiring. And that was one of the hesitations over the years of potentially leaving California was I did not want to decrease my professional activity and um, likelihood of success. So, but I re- sort of reverse engineered the process here and said, well, where do we want to live first? And then what would be the proof points and steps that be required to allow someone who's professionally ambitious to succeed and basically decompose those things. I said, if my husband, let's decide where we want to live. And then it's my job and my responsibility to figure out how to make that successful. And if I think it's not possible, then we won't live there. But I, let me go through the exercise of what would it take to be successful. And as I sort of studied the history of Silicon Valley and thought about the fundamentals of Miami, it occurred to me that there was no reason why Miami couldn't be extremely successful for people who are highly ambitious, aspirational in technology. I said, okay, we're going to do this and then let's make this work now. It's sort of my belief in life. So this is an illustration of just how I approach pretty much everything in my life. I sort of believe in this philosophy of path dependence, which is you decide where you want to go. And then by deciding decisively what you want to do and what you want to achieve and where you want to do it, you increase the probabilities of success. So I don't believe in option value and you know alternatives. I believe in you make a decision and then you take every bit of resources, energy you have, and you concentrate that and and drive that into the most successful outcome possible. That's interesting. And and it sounds like it started with that intent and then the strategy started to unfold. At, at what point did you meet uh, Francis Suarez, the uh, the mayor? Was that early on before you moved or after you moved? Or Literally, that- the, uh, literally I, I had not met him until three days after we moved in. So I moved in, uh, well, actually four days. I moved, we moved in uh, December on a Thursday and I had dinner with him on Sunday. And who who reached out to who in that that formula? Well, so what happened was um, Fortune, um, one of the journalists at Fortune wrote the story that I was going to move to Miami uh, sometime in November. And that started a debate dialogue discussion on Twitter. And the mayor noticed it and he welcomed me to Miami. And this started another cascade of attention. And that's the first time really I knew who he was. So I followed politics pretty carefully. I certainly knew who the governor and the senators were, and I met several of them. And I knew someone that probably could have named half the Congress people, you know, from Florida. Yeah. But I actually wasn't very familiar with his career until he tweeted at me. And then, of course, I looked him up, and I was very impressed. And then we started having a dialogue. I see. And it's probably a, a different dialogue than most of us would have because you've been in government and public policy and you've lived it. So you could probably it fast forward the conversation in some ways to an interesting uh, yes, cer- cer- Certainly, I occasionally uh, pull some random data points when I'm talking to politicians and they're, they're impressed of like, you know, I can usually tell like some congressman what the history of their district is, you know, like going back like 50, 60, 70 years sometimes. Um, I've read every, you know, all the back American history pretty well. Um, so I occasionally have some random data points that surprise people. Yeah. Well, I'll tell you, there were a few things that really caught my attention about uh, the, um, the the wave with Florida. I think one is the rapid dismissiveness of some people in California to it is fascinating to me because I think the same people that like to think they're forward thinking, they have trouble understanding that, you know, these changes can happen rapidly. Two was there was an autonomous trucking company I was involved with. It didn't work out at the end of the day, but they did all of their testing in Florida. And a lot of people don't realize just how progressive and forward-thinking Florida is around the support of autonomous vehicle testing. And there's kind of a series of examples like that that I think people didn't realize. And the other data point is Jack Abraham making the big move to move out there. And Jack is somebody I've known for years, really, um, really sharp uh, at starting and coming up with ideas for businesses. And when I saw that he made that move, um, that really, really caught my attention because he's, I, I went to Wharton for grad school and he went undergrad. And as you probably know, all of the smart Wharton grads are undergrads. You know, that's like Elon Musk and, uh, 
you know, Nat Turner, you know, who started Flatiron Health and is a serial entrepreneur like he'll, you know, but but what's interesting about Nat and and um, and uh, Jack is that I view them on the same caliber, having the same caliber as Elon Musk. They're just not quite as far along right now, but they're that capable. Um, so how did how did that unfold? Was it because, you know, he's friends with some of the same circle of people, Peter Thiel people, and then he came out and then looked at it and came to the same conclusion? Like, how did that unfold? So I didn't know initially what propelled Jack to move out here in March, which is more an experiment, March of 2020. But then by the time the September rolled around, so roughly five months later, he was committed to Miami. He purchased a house. And that was actually one of the most important signals for me because Jack is up and coming, ambitious. And so we did a, Lauren and I, Lauren Gross, who's our COO at Founders Fund, and I did a reference call with him and really asked him, A, what do you like? You know, like, what do you like in terms of lifestyle and stuff like that? But ultimately, are the fundamentals here to build an impressive technology center? And his answers were clear and unequivocal. And that's when my mind started to shift that this would be a lot easier than I realized in terms <laughs> of building a foundation. I was like, if Jack really believes he can build atomic here and atomic companies here, worst case is I could just finance his good companies. And you know, that's, <laughs> that, that's good enough. I, I just need, you know, I, I'm a pretty active investor for like capitalists, but I just need three or four good investments a year. And I'm, I'm, you know, I'm off to the races. And so if Jack can be, I was thinking, well, Jack can, you know, spin up one or two that I like, that's already half of my job for the year. So that was pretty persuasive. So Jack was really incredibly influential. So I had been Jack's first external investor back in 2008. When he oh, dropped out Yeah, with Milo. So I, I led the seed round of Milo during the board when he dropped out of Wharton to found the company. So I've known him forever. And so I was pretty impressed uh, with his willingness to move and recreate, you know, sort of atomic here. But his feedback was very instrumental in persuading me that I could be successful here. Then secondarily, I also knew that some of the most recent investments that I made that, that were really promising were way outside the Bay Area. So one of my favorite companies is in Berlin. I felt like if I was in Miami, A, I could spend more time with the company in Berlin and probably take advantage of the opportunity of going to Europe and funding, finding new companies on the Eastern Seaboard and in Europe that were very difficult to do uh, from the West Coast. So in, in fact, that's already manifested itself. Um, I mentioned on Twitter that of the eight last investments I've made, something like five are in New York City. And you know my typical ratio of New York City investments is like running around ten percent over six or seven years, so incredibly different skew. So I felt that that would also be easy to do. And then I started to think through: if you wanted to build a successful ecosystem here, what are the actual ingredients? And my diagnosis was a little bit different than some other people on Twitter. And you're right that at first it created tons of ridicule. I thought there was more. Like, <laughs> that's understandable. I mean, <laughs> that's yeah, really understandable. But, that, but that's okay. <laughs> I, I was actually I was actually pretty happy about that. So I have this acid test I use as a VC, which is I want half of my friends to laugh, half of my VC friends to laugh at me when I make a new investment. That's how I know I do, I'm doing my job well. Is like that amount of ridicule means I'm still taking risks and still seeing things that other people don't see. And so I felt like this is just like starting a company. No one appreciates the best companies right away. Like when I invested in Airbnb, everybody thought it was ridiculous. YouTube. Everybody thought it was ridiculous, including my parents. Um, even LinkedIn, most people thought it was ridiculous. So there's, it was kind of, for me, it felt very common to being a founder or being an early investor board member in a cutting edge company. And so I, I was kind of excited about that. And this is just really like rebuilding a company. You start with inertia, it's not your friend, and you have to create momentum and you have to amplify the momentum. And then eventually the momentum kicks in, you create accumulating advantages and network effects. So this is exactly what we've been doing in Miami. It's just as applied to a city writ large versus a specific organization. One of my favorite founders uh, texted me like a month into this project and he said, oh, come on, Keith, the city's way too easy for you. When are you going to recreate a country? <laughs> I, was like, okay, so I was like, okay, settle down, give me five years first. and then let's have our conversation. That'll be a Florida secedes. So <laughs> not inconceivable. <laughs> 
So if you're just tuning in, I'm Rob Cunnivere, and this is Launchpad on Business Radio, Sirius XM 132. I'm on Zoom right now with Keith Raboy, a general partner at Founders Fund and incredibly successful serial entrepreneur. So coming back to Jack for a moment, and this this comes to a question that I've been curious about and was um, had kind of previewed up front. There aren't too many people that go back and forth between the worlds of investment and venture capital and operating roles. And looking at your operating roles to a large extent, it looks like it's not really CEO, but it's um, you know executive chairman or COO or kind of roles where you're just making the organization work, which in some ways is even more antithetical to um, VC because you're actually making decisions. You're being prescriptive, you're doing it. But also as an investor, I think you have to be very, very comfortable with people doing what they're going to do. You know, just like they're going to do it. You give them the advice, but then they're just going to go do it. And, um, you know, I, I look at Jack Abraham and what's interesting with Jack is, he keeps a very, very long list of business ideas, which I'm sure you know. It's like hundreds and hundreds of ideas and notes. And he handles it like the formula to Coca-Cola. So nobody's seen the entire list. So there are people that have seen like subsets of it, but nobody's seen the entire list. And what I'm curious about like with this is how do you how do you pull it off? Like the the two things, because I've seen so many operators come into VC. And then they're like, I don't like this because nobody listens to me on the advice side. Like, maybe just talk about your philosophy around that. How does it it's work? A great, it's a great set of questions. I think there are very distinct mental models to be successful as an operating executive CEO and as an investor. As an investor, my primary responsibility is to play consigliere or psychologist, somewhere in between. Ask a lot of questions, probing questions, and lead the entrepreneur to their own answers. So they provide it, but just by asking a series of self-reflective questions and being someone like a thought partner for them to debate with. But I never get to make the decision, like literally never. Um, maybe in theory, we would never do this at Founders Fund, but in theory, if you see if they're going to replace the CEO, that's about the only decision you ever make as an investor. And, and when you're acting like that consigliere, do you, and they ask you, well, what would you do? Do you try to avoid that and just set the frame or will you say, well, I, or how do you handle that? I, I will try to set the best entrepreneurs are using one conceptual framework versus an answer. Um, almost always. But if they ask me for what would you do, given all the constraints, data, uncertainty, I will always answer it if I have a perspective. Sometimes I do. Sometimes I have a strong perspective. Sometimes I have a weak perspective. Sometimes I have no idea. And I'm very glad I don't have to decide um, if you get the luxuries that you see. As an executive, you don't get that luxury, and certainly not as CEO. And that's the biggest difference between being CEO and any other role is someone always you always have to make a decision, and no decisions, in fact, a decision. So I think they are different, and some people will be better at some roles, and some will be better at others. So, for example, as an investor, you also need to. Uh, one of the best features of being an investor is you get to have broad peripheral vision. If you're intellectually curious. Or you have ADD, that's like the flip side. Being an investor can be a great role. You get to learn new things all the time, sometimes every hour on the hour, or some, certainly every day. And you have to be a very fast study because you have to pick up topics and ideas and people and read people in very small doses of time. And so if you like that kind of problem solving, context switching, um, and can be um, skate very lightly, but get to the bottom of something. Being an investor can be wonderful, and you have to be decisive. You have to be quick, especially in a hot market. You can't you can't study things forever. Being an executive, though, is all about narrowing and mastering and being extraordinarily both talented and insightful compared to everybody else in the planet. And then you rinse and repeat and find the next problem and do the same thing. And so, unless some people, it's very obvious which one they would be better at. There's very few people who I think are equally proficient at both. For me, I've, I've been emotionally torn because I actually do enjoy parts of both. I am intellectually curious, and the reason why I like to read. Do you think doing both has actually made you better at each? Because for a sometimes, lot of people, yeah. Some, sometimes, yes. I think there's benefits when I'm providing advice and counsel of having actually suffered through the same problems and or made the same mistakes that I can be constructive in a very precise way that's useful. 
I think there's times when it's actually negative. The biggest negative is actually an investor. I sometimes remember how difficult some things were. And I might be unfortunately too terrorized for re-approaching that problem. So in fact, sometimes the closer it is to my prior experience, the worst judgment I make, because I remember the pain and how difficult certain problems were. <laughs> and I, I think, I, yeah, I think I would be better off naive sometimes. Um, so, I, I, but I think there are times when it's beneficial. So I've been suicidal enough right now to go back in, start another company, and this time be CEO for a while. And you know, it's, remind, <laughs> it's remind, yeah, exactly. You have the laughter is exactly right. Um, it's reminding me, though, of a lot of details that seven or eight years of being an investor had sort of forgotten about. And, you know, some of them are more important than others. And I think I can take some of those lessons now, suffering through some of those challenges, reapply them, and give better advice and feedback. And maybe more empathetically to some CEOs. For example, I did my first investor pitch in over eight years. And, you know, truthfully, the deck was a complete mess until... 24 hours before the investor pitch. It was even not very good until an hour before the investor pitch. And I'd sort of forgotten, you know, all the pain and difficulty that goes into creating a pretty reasonable deck. I did on the other side for eight years, giving advice and feedback, but never having to actually implement it and suffer through the time horizon to get it done, get done properly, design it correctly, you know, et cetera. So just going through that exercise recently has made me a little bit more sympathetic to the CEOs I'm working with when I'm giving their feedback on the tech. Well, Keith, this has really been a fantastic hour. Just just absolutely flew by. And um, just because we have to wrap up, I'm going to point people at your Twitter feed. I believe it's at Raboy. It is. Yeah. If you haven't followed him, you should. And, um, you know, he's like the great white shark out there. You don't know when he's going to respond to something you have to say and we'll follow you. But Keith, thanks again. And uh, thank you all for joining us. If you missed any of the last hour, you can find it on the SiriusXM app. And you can follow Business Radio on Twitter at SXM Business. You can also follow me at Rob Conivier on Twitter. I'm Rob Conivier, a founder and managing director at Shasta Ventures. And you've been listening to Launchpad on Business Radio, Sirius XM 132. For more guest interviews, check out our Wharton Business Radio Highlights podcast on iTunes and Google Play. 